0: Welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. I'm your host, Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this podcast to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. Most of my guests are authors, and in each episode I explore their life journeys and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read so that you can use these same strategies and tactics too. So, if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Steve, welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. Thank you for being here. You're welcome, Brian, thank you. Steve, tell me, what's life about? Uh, I have no idea,
1: but I think you mean more specifically, does it have a purpose or is there a purpose to, to discover some meaning out there that would enrich us to be in sync with, or, or have I found it and what is
0: it? Is, is, that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. When I ask this question, I find people typically answer in one of two ways. They will say, they'll declare what life is about just generally, mm-hmm. you know, for themselves and everyone. And then sure. others will make it more specific to themselves and say, well, my life is about yeah, right. and, uh, I have no idea on either count, so yeah. <laughs> anything okay, well, you can say.
1: The third external, externality, uh-huh. I imagine, would be what is it, it really about? Yes. As if there's an it that can be really about something. Right. Independent of you and me and others, right? So in that sense, it doesn't have any inherent meaning. There's a universe, and why it's there, and even... The point of it being there defies my grasp. I haven't found someone whose grasp I would, you know, line up with. So, that's a mystery. Now, we say that in some work that I've done um, with people dealing with that question, that life's empty and meaningless. But as important, it's empty and meaningless that it's empty and meaningless. So, the notion that life's empty and meaningless became philosophically espoused with the existentialists, mm-hmm. Sartre and Camus. And, but they made it mean something that it was empty and meaningless. It was like depressing. That Sartre's book was la nausee, nauseous, made him nauseous to deal with the nothingness that he confronted when he stripped away all the illusions and meanings. That he had added to everything or accepted that had been added to things by his culture, his family, his tribe, whatever. And in some process of de- taking it away, stripping it away, he confronted nothingness. That though was depressing or down, at least a downer. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my view of it, that is nothing, doesn't mean anything. It just doesn't mean anything mm. and it doesn't mean anything that it doesn't mean anything now with that said i have a life to live and i can have and create a meaning for what i do i can have a purpose that i create i just don't i don't live in the notion of finding the purpose mm. or being um convinced of a purpose by someone else, you have to confront
0: creating it for myself. you know when when I hear that, I think there's a way of hearing that that could be depressing. I think or at least I could choose to use to make myself <laughs> depressed, right. And then there's another way that it's it's actually very liberating. like it's full of possibility. yeah And uh, w- when I've reflected on this this thought of it it's empty and meaningless, one of the things that I arrived at was this idea of the difference between nothingness and emptiness. And I realize in some of this, it might sound like a matter of semantics, but to me, I feel like I lived a life of, of nothingness, like believing, you know, life was kind of dark and lonely. And there was, there was no purpose, not that there, but not that it was empty and meaningless and waiting for me to bring purpose to Mm -hmm. life, you, have you thought about that or do you, see, do you see a distinction between nothingness and emptiness? Or do you find they're interchangeable? Well, I, I mean, I can see the distinction you're making. It's not something I
1: normally see. Mm-hmm. When I've examined this life, quote, or this reality we live in, mm-hmm. from, the pos- from, the re- from the distinction, infinity, and think of time as infinite, I mean, if you really play that out, it boggles your mind to think of it going on forever. Forever. yeah, Forever. Never <laughs> ending. Forever. And everywhere. No infinite in space and ba- no boundaries and infinite in time, no boundaries and so forth. So it became for me a matter of um, what is the word? Arrogance. Mm-hmm. To think that somehow I had the capacity to put the limits on this infinite reality mm-hmm. and say, oh, it's this, whatever this is. You mm-hmm. know? Um, now, in my finite life, which I have, because I have a beginning, I'm, I'm in the middle towards end part of it, and there'll be an end, there I can have, that can create something. So there is an angst to creation. You and I were talking before we started the recording about the, sort of the angst of creating, writing, writing a book or anything creative, I think, has a um, confront to it. You know, what do I do? I can do anything here The this space. Yeah. I can literally do anything. To know what's worth doing? Right. And then, you know, what are the standards by which I'm judging what I'm doing and all that it leads to a lot of questions. But all those questions still don't matter because there's, if you're going to do something, you got to do it. Right. right? The reality that life's infinite or playing it out and what it means, thinking about infinity and, and, and everywhere once I'm done kind of destroying all the notions I would put together, I'm still left with, well, now what do I do with my life? Right. Do I just sit on a mountaintop? Do I just, you know, vegetate? Do I, so it's never worked for me to not really be up to something so when i when i realized i was up to things for a while part of my life because i felt i should be up to something Mm -hmm. and then i should be up to this thing kind of like my circle Mm -hmm. my social network was up to various things and i wanted to fit into what people were up to so i came up with something that fit in but when I outgrew that notion, at least, I think of it as outgrowing it, I was left with nothing, now what, now
0: what? When did you outgrow that, by the way? Oh, probably in my late 20s. What, how did you do 20s. it? I mean, did you just wake up one day, or did something happen, or did you read a book? Like, how did, well, you, how did you outgrow that?
1: Well, in, first I studied philosophy, so in philosophy you get exposed to a lot of strange ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it makes you, it, if you're lucky, you end up thinking a little bit doing some thinking other than read other people's thoughts and to be perfectly honest with you this was the late 60s and 70s played around with psychedelic drugs and um they have a particularly powerful doorway into life So in that experimentation and then in my own experimentation with philosophy and dealing with, like, thinking through a lot of things we're talking about, it just came to me. This is like, you know, this is BS, what I'm doing, what I think I should be doing, now what do I really want to do.
0: That took me about four or five years to sort out what I really wanted to do. When you sorted it out, has it remained consistent from that time? Yeah. That was how many years ago? Oh, back, oh God, early 70s. So 40, 50 years yeah. and it's been consistent. So yes. you did a really good job of sorting. Well, either that or I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go much further, since our listeners, uh, aside from whatever intro I've written for this podcast, they don't know who you are yet mm-hmm. or what you've done or why they should care about what you have to say. Mm-hmm. So let me start by asking you, when someone, when you meet someone or you know, someone asks you who you are and what you do, what do you tell them? Well, what I've
1: been managing for the last 25 years is pretty much what I tell them. It's an incomplete answer, but it's, you know, what do you do? It mm-hmm. doesn't give you a lot of time to respond. Right. Um, so what I currently am doing, have been doing for the last 25 years is managing a transformational consulting company. A consulting company that deals with the ideas of transfer, what we call transformation in service of performance, basically. Now, performance can mean a lot of things in a lot of different contexts. So it could be the standard pictures that come up for people of more money and more profitability or less problems with safety would be improved performance. But it could also be um, supporting government agencies and delivering on what their purpose is as an agency, or even um, charities, being more successful in doing their charity work. So whatever people are up to organizationally or can be up to organizationally, we can have found a methodology that supports and improves it. So I helped found that company and then became a CEO, recently turned the CEO job over to someone else. Um, who's running the company, and now I still manage some of the large-scale engagements and do the R&D for the company. So that's what I do. Now, before that, I was working in a similar field of transformation but applied to people, individuals. So in that regard, I was working in um, bringing these ideas that we call transformational to people all over the world. Probably did that for thirty years, twenty-five years or so mm-hmm. before we started the Banto Group, the consulting company. Amazing, that's twenty-five long,
0: years, something like that. Longevity. It's a passion. Yeah, it, yeah, it shows. Yeah, cool. So you've written this book, The Three Laws of Performance. Mm-hmm. You're talking about performance now. Book was published ten years ago. Yeah.
1: It was bestseller ten years ago in the United States. S- has since been published in
0: I think it's 17 languages. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. Still selling well. Yeah, I've, I've read this book and I've had the chance to apply some of what you talk about in this book to my own life, mm-hmm. uh, to apply some of it in our family and our family business. And I've found that it's a, a profound way of shifting Uh, an attempt to achieve like high performance, right? Where I think my experience is a lot of books have great ideas, you know, or, or almost a random assortment of ideas. But this is a very, maybe I should let you talk about it. But my view of your book is that it's a very, I want to say cogent. Like it's very logical, even though it's not intuitive. Like I don't, I think I could have lived my whole life without Mm -hmm. never thinking about some of the thoughts in your book, right? But what I'm interested to know is, why did you write this book? Like, who did you write it for? and What did you want it to do for them? The
1: work that we, we do live, in person, in groups, which is the normal venue with which we deliver the ideas, whether it was the personal transformational work that I did before, the consulting work, which is still being delivered by a company called Landmark, Every year throughout the world is probably 80,000 to 100,000 people that take the basic program, that program is delivered to 100 people or 150 people live. And the consulting work we do is delivered to groups, large groups live. That allows for dialogue and, you know, it goes, conversation has a fluidity and, and agility and so forth. It is fairly complex. I mean, it's not a simple conversation, not an easy conversation. It's There are no tips in the conversation, no rules, no principles to follow. It's about life. It's about your life in the areas of communication or the area of relationship or the area of vitality or well-being as an individual. In an organizational setting, we've done work from bringing together groups that have conflict with each other. Like we did an engagement in South Africa at a Platinum mine where the groups were not only in conflict, but it actually had significant warfare with each other. Like physical violence. Physical violence, yeah. And the point of that work was to get everybody to see if they were willing to create something new going forward that um, actually was collaborative, creative, and in the benefit of everybody versus who's stealing my piece of the pie. But all that work requires some very, very non-intuitive ideas. Okay? So there was somewhat opaque to an outsider. Like if you asked me, tell me in depth what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. The in-depth would be hours long. Mm -hmm. And it would be like a conversation you'd have to stay in and hang in. And there would be ways we would create a kind of specialized terms for for certain phenomena. You know, if we're talking about listening, we have different ways of referring to listening. One is like already listening or always listening. And those are just meaningless phrases until you understand the import behind them. So we were successful in what we were doing, but it was limited by the, um, the complexity of the, of the, the methodology and its availability to other people who couldn't take all that time to get into it. I never thought it was possible to communicate it any other way myself. And then um, I actually had a co-author to the book, The Three Loads of Performance. His name is Dave Logan. And Dave's a professor. He's on the faculty at the University of Southern California. Dave and I were part of a think tank that was put together by a man named Werner Erhardt was the originator of a lot of these ideas. And the um, purpose of the think tank, and the think tank was about 20 to 25 people, something like that, from all different disciplines. Um, there was a psychologist in it, and there was a Harvard business professor in it, there was a brain scientist in it, an astrophysicist in it, um, consultants were in it, some CEOs. And ultimately the question was, is performance something that can be worked with in a meaningful way to elevate. And if it can be, can it be worked on individually, group-wise,
0: and organization-wise? How do you do that? So, so, so by the way, this was the purpose of the think tank, not yeah. just like one initiative, the think no, tank, was but the, this was the, the, purpose. the reason. Yeah. Okay.
1: And there are a lot of people who were interested in participating, and a lot of people were mystified or confused or intrigued by human behavior, mm-hmm. which didn't seem to you know, fit very nicely in most of the boxes we got for it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, Mike Jensen, was in the group and has been a colleague of mine and was a professor at the Harvard Business School, now emeritus, Mike shared with me at some point in our relationship where his big one of his big epiphanies was realizing that the big failure of his business school, and he thought business schools in general, was that they related to the people, the students, and others in conflict in, 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 that came into um, uh, interaction with the university as rational creatures. So they trained rational creatures to manage other rational creatures in administration and finance and economics and budgeting. And, had to manage a company. His big insight was people are not rational. So the big failures were not failures, well, were failures not necessarily because of the situation, possibly because people were not trained to deal with the real nature of life itself. Human beings. So it doesn't mean that if you say human beings are not rational, it doesn't mean they're crazy. It just means Their rationality happens from time to time. Other things go on from time to time. So if you look at passion, I mean, passion is not rational. Love is not rational. You know, our emotional side is not rational. Yeah. But a lot of our life is emotional, negative or positive. Standing for something and being committed to something is not a rational act. There may be a rationale to it. But to go to war, to fight for an idea, that's not very rational. Yeah. You can be killed. Right. And people are supposed to be worried about their self-interest. So why would anybody do that, right? So, therefore, we were interested in, well, what makes people tick, really? Really, What is this? Is Or is there some way of getting it? And um, as we were doing this work with this group of people that went on for like
0: five, five or six years. And what was the function, by the way? Did you meet quarterly? Did you once or twice a year? Uh, we you... met, generally, we met quarterly,
1: at least twice a year. Maybe in the beginning it may have been more often. Mm-hmm. And then there were conference calls or subgroups and there's writings distributed and comments by people and kind of an ongoing conversation using conference calls, meetings, uh, email, etc. cetera. And, and what kind of outcomes did you have for the group? Well, the intention was to Arrive at some deep understanding of this mysterious thing called action and behavior and performance, mm-hmm. or to arrive at something, whether maybe there's nothing to arrive at, arrive at that. Mm-hmm. And then if there was something to arrive at, publish what you arrived at. And the commitment was to publish it in a um, academic, the rigorous academic way, mm-hmm. so that it um, spoke to the academic world and had that kind of uh, grounding and commitment and um, rigor. So the final product still has not been written up. Hmm. It's probably 80% done to 90%, but it's still not done along the way. And this was now we started on working on this thing in the early 2000s, middle 2000s. Along the way, people were very excited about what we'd come up with, even though it wasn't complete wasn't written exactly in the format we wanted it to end up being. But they asked if I, who views a lot of these ideas in organizations, and Dave, uh, who, as I said, is an academic, but also has published a number of books, very successful books, um, would write kind of a guide to the ideas for the people not involved in really dealing with them. So interested listener, you know someone who would be interested in that kind of stuff, but not necessarily they had any um, background to the methodology the ideas that we're using in the methodology. So you could say the everyday kind of audience. but I don't know, it's not everyday for everybody. you know a lot of people are not going to be called to deal with human behavior as, as it applies to performance in, in life and performance in organizations. But if you are interested in that kind of thing, you could read it. And our job is to somehow walk this middle path between having the ideas be authentic, not dumbing them down, but not speaking over people. Mm -hmm. So giving people a way to get into it faster than they would have. And that was really challenging for me because I didn't think it was possible to
0: start. So you undertook... A task you believed was impossible. Yeah, you did yeah. it. At, why, why did you do that? Well,
1: because they asked me to.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Okay.
1: And Dave seemed to think it was doable. We, in the five years it took for Dave and I to write the book that we ended up, probably rewrote it 35 times. Wow. Like literally the entire book. Mm-hmm. And we went through almost a uh, strange kind of, um, what is it? Star Trek mind meld. Mm-hmm. In The beginning, this is the conversation. At the beginning is they would say to me, Steve, that's way too, you know, jargon, that's much too jargon jar- or much too specialized, people are not going to get that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I'd read Dave's stuff that he'd write an answer to that, and I say, This is too, like, you done this down too much. <laughs> so that was the conversation for the first year or two, and then somehow. We started having the opposite conversation. I'd look at Dave's stuff and I said, hey, this is way beyond people's ability to get. This is, you know, this is way too dense. And then he said, well, what you wrote was this, you know, you're dumbing it down. (laughs) So we kind of changed heads for a while. That's funny. And then we ended up in some shared space at one point. Mm -hmm. We found a voice between the two of us.
0: That's awesome. How satisfied are you with the final product? Now, I mean, after thirty five rewrites and a co-writer how how pleased are you with the form of the book that is the finished form
1: well you got to remember it was we did it ten years ago mm-hmm. so at the time I was pleased to just finish it yeah that it was for me nothing had been sacrificed that I thought was really you know important that it did communicate it was authentic it was in fact, about things that had happened and a way to look at it that in fact, we did find, we did use and did find powerful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And people's feedback were, were, was good. They became a, like I said, in the United States, a bestseller and people are still, I still get notes from people about the book. People, have, some people have read it many, many times. It's been taught
0: in universities are still being taught in university classes on performance. Will you tell me about a note you've received that has touched you, like something from a reader, somebody that you didn't necessarily know, but you created this work, you sent it out into the world, somebody found it, it resonated, maybe they applied. Like, Is there a, some some one of those that stands out for you? Well, to be honest with you, Brian, I had, I've had a number of them. So I don't know how many can I say numbers, 20, 50, something mm-hmm. like that.
1: Mm-hmm. But I, every now and then I'll get a message from someone that I don't know. Will say, Look, I, I've read your book three times now, four times, or whatever. I actually have it on my nightstand, and I really want to thank you. It's saved me this, or I was able to do this, things like that. So that I find it particularly gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's also been an entree into people wanting to explore in a deeper way what we do, organizationally and personally. Mm-hmm. So I do know that, you know, that's, that's brought people into the world of our commitments, like what we're up to, what we do with what we do. So that's been probably the most rewarding thing that has been, um, it's been an open, a doorway into others getting the full, the whole thing,
0: you know. I'll bet, I'll bet that is gratifying. So when you were writing the book, or, or maybe now that it's done and it's, it's out, is there, a, is there a profile of your ideal reader? like the person that you either wrote it for or who seems to benefit most from it? I mean, is this middle managers, C-level managers, entrepreneurs, you know, someone else, business school students? Is there some kind of category you know, Category that... Not that I, I... Let me think about that for a second. I don't
1: think so, but... Um, no, I've thought of it in different terms. I've thought of it more, how willing are and open are you to non... To counterintuitive ideas and um, a lot of people find a counterintuitive idea test horrible terrible it's hard for them to be in the same room as that idea you no know? yeah um, then there are people that are thrilled by these ideas and then people in between willing I think the ones who are willing you know not not in any camp like oh the more counterintuitive it is the better mm-hmm. I think they get a lot a lot, lot out of the material. But anybody who's willing to just consider it as possible and sort of go through it and play it out and try it out, Mm -hmm. I think would be
0: surprised. So was there a moment, like a specific moment that you knew you would write this book? After being asked to write it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, did you know in that I moment, was not, or did you? I was not
1: sitting in this group thinking I was going to write a book,
0: okay? Right. That was not, like, the plan. So, was, yeah, I, I know looking back sometimes we can find, or you know, or remember, like, oh, my gosh, yeah. Like, I wasn't really sure, or I wasn't committed, and then all the, I remember I was at this restaurant or it was in a conversation with someone or whatever. Did you have a moment like that, that it was, like, it just crystallized and you knew that you would write this book?
1: I think there was this crescendo of moments from, well, one of the, well, one of the people who was a real advocate for us writing this book, separate from the Barbados group, which was the name of the think tank, we ended up calling the group of 20 or 23 people, how many people it was, the Barbados group, because that was the first place we met in Barbados. So, it seemed like a Sounds, name. sounds yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before that, a man named Warren Bennis, who's very, not passed on, but um, was a distinguished professor at USC and had been uh, the president of, I think, the University of Cincinnati. He was a, um, um, considered the authority on leadership. Brilliant man, wrote, wrote or co-authored over 40 books in leadership and had his own um, publishing imprint within a big publishing company, Wiley Books. It was called Josie Bass was his, the books that he's personally selected, his collection of books. So, Warren and Dave and our spouses and and his wife had dinner one night. We were sharing about the Barbados Group and sharing about some of the engagements that my consulting company, uh, Vanto Group, was doing in South America at that time. And he said, Oh, you guys have got to write you got to write this up. You got to write about this. You got to write this as a book. I'll I'll get it published in my, you know, collection of books. That was a real, you know, acknowledgement. Yeah. Um that kind of, well, that'd be great. Maybe mm-hmm. not right now, you know. <laughs> later. Later. Definitely later. But it was sitting there and then maybe a year later the group conversation said we ought to print this and Dave you've written a book Steve you've done a lot of these things why don't you guys write it then it was kind of like well that's a great idea except I don't know if you can write it Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so but I was at least willing to try so Dave and I tried a couple of drafts and so forth and found a a book uh um kind of represent us um what I think shifted things for me in terms of the book itself well so we wrote, we wrote a draft. people like to draft. For me, when I write something, not just the book or articles that I've written or stuff, I almost have no real basis on deciding whether it's any good or not. Mm-hmm. I mean if I like it, I like it. Mm-hmm. Whether it communicates or it makes any difference for other people, I have no idea in just looking at it myself. Mm-hmm. And then I spin it out and it either does or it doesn't. I get the feedback. So every now and then there's someone whose feedback really matters, so our publisher. So we got a contract. Our book agent got us a contract. They didn't pay us advance. And so now we're, the the clock was ticking. Yeah, now it's on. Now it's on, it's (laughs) real. Yeah. And I still don't know how we're gonna write this book, okay? whether it really can be written in the way with the intent. I I know something can be written. I know something could be, you know, uh, popularized. But if your goal is not to popularize it, but to have it be popular, but to have it be meaningful at the same time and authentic in terms of the ideas, that still was a question. So we wrote some stuff and we sent it to our editor, from the we got assigned an editor, uh, a woman named Susan, and she was great. She was great. She had no familiarity with our work at all. She would never done any of the public programs that we did. Just, I mean, all she knew was Warren liked it, and that was important for her. Mm-hmm. So, we called her up. We set up a call with her, and she almost. The way in which she was an editor was she would deal with the obvious stuff in editing, not what did she what did we think, what did she think about it? Like really, what did she really think about it? So we got in conversations with her about what she really think about it, and she really was getting it. And her responses, she got more and more excited as we wrote more and more. So she became a a real contributor oh. to the um to the design of the the book, with the attention that we had, mm-hmm. and we kept Warren. Warren spent probably more time with us than he had with other people for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as the uh, the overall editor of the book, you know, of the collection of books. Mm-hmm. So they were very positive, and their positivity at some point said, "Okay, this can be done. Now let's just do it." How do you think the book is different
0: because of Warren's involvement?
1: Oh, very different. He's a mass he was a master at storytelling and writing and communicating. And his books are, are really great to read. They're just fun to read. They're they're really great. And when we first met him, we had done a lot of work on this one compelling story. It's in the book about this big labor breakdown between Unions and management, and kind of a real drama that took place, mm-hmm. right? And Warren came in. We, were, we met him at a restaurant in Santa Monica, and he had a whole. He brought with him a board, like a card, you know, cardboard board mm-hmm. piece, of, you know, four by four, four by three, or something like that. And he takes out and he says, "Do you guys know about storytelling storyboards?" I said, "No." He said, "It's what they do in movies." He said, I put together a little storyboard here of the story that you guys are talking about. Wow. And he had dissected it into the characters and the incidents and so forth, like the story. Wow. And taught us stories. How cool. Yes. <laughs> Only in Hollywood.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Only with Warren. That's awesome. You're dealing with philosophy. Yeah. And stories. So you got this contract without having written a book proposal. No, no, we did write a book proposal. So you did write a book proposal. We wrote a book proposal
1: that the book agent liked, who was un- completely, un- at that time, unfamiliar with our work. But he liked it. Mm. So that that was a score. So he ended up selling it to other people who were unfamiliar with our work. So it started to break down the barriers called the people unfamiliar with our work are not going to get it. Because mm-hmm. they were. Yeah. And it was, but it, it, it wasn't this
0: one moment... It was these series of moments that tipped me over. Mm -hmm. So this entire book, I mean, it's in the title, Performance, this word performance. I think this book is also a lot about leadership, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm curious to get your uh, perspective on when it comes to leadership, what is it that most people get wrong?
1: Well, I think most people get wrong that they can't be one. So I would, if you went around and polled people about could they be a leader with regard to X, Y, and Z, Mm -hmm. could they actually do it? And and they were being truthful about it, not, you know, I mean, with themselves. Most people would not see themselves as being able to provide leadership unless they had certain conditions which they don't have. For example, they don't have the authority. Mm -hmm. So people confuse uh, a lot of being a leader with being the the boss, the commander, the person in authority. Mm. So if I don't have the authority, I can't be a leader. That's a fallacy, because leadership has nothing to do with authority. In fact, oftentimes when you have the authority, that gets in the way of your leadership. Because people are listening to you as the boss, and they're going to do what you say because you're the boss. Mm. Not because the idea of its own has a critical possibility that makes a difference. So, authority is not needed for leadership. Position, there's no position called the leader. There's the executive, the chief executive, the owner. There's lots of positions. But we all can provide leadership or not. We tend to think of leaders as having kind of traits, you know, charismatic traits or they compel people their very presence compels people. They're born with these things. That's another fallacy. You're born with certain capacities or abilities. I'm not born with them, so therefore, I can't be a leader
0: mm. like that. Mm. Yeah, I think um, most, most people definitely believe that yeah. right, and limit themselves in so doing. Yeah. So there's lots of
1: ways we limit ourselves against the possibility of leadership. My basic premise is that they're all fallacious. There's no limits. I mean, there are, there are limits, but the limits of leadership, they don't, don't exist because leadership is really, what are you willing to stand for? What are you willing to say? What are you willing to be committed to mm-hmm. through long periods of time? So leadership is not necessarily easy, it may take years for something to turn out that you're committed to and providing leadership for, which takes a lot. But it, it, what it takes is available is something everyone can do. That doesn't mean everybody will do it or could find the wherewithal to stay that disciplined because it does require discipline. But they're not the kinds of things that are unavailable to me by, by birth or by position
0: or by status or things like that. So this is one of the, I mean, essentially what all these three laws of performance ultimately, as I see it, ultimately is what they're about. Right. And to know that that was a part of this thinking in the Barbados group and that you, you know, accepted the assignment to write a book that that conveyed these in a way that the lay reader, you know, would get and be able to apply is, is pretty remarkable. And as I asked you the question about how satisfied are you now with the finished form, and you made a comment to the effect that, well, 10 years ago, <laughs> 10 years ago, you were you were pretty satisfied. That's kind of what I took from your answer. If I say, how about today, you know, having the benefit of a decade now, mm-hmm. you know, ha- having seen this book in existence, how satisfied are you, are you with the book in this moment?
1: I'm very satisfied. It actually exceeded my, definitely exceeded my expectations because initially my expectations weren't very high, <laughs> but after it was published and it got a it got a very positive, the feedback was positive, in all the various ways that you measure success. Then I thought, well, that's that's great. It's working, you know. Mm-hmm. But I've seen it go beyond that. It wasn't um, that it's had lasting power and and its ideas are still. Considered unique and novel and you know Mm. leading edge. Yeah after 10 years I think pretty great
0: so that that makes me happy. That's awesome. Yeah, so one thing in the book summary That I read and, and so I don't know that these words are in the book Exactly, but this idea that having more information does not translate into different actions merely having more more knowledge or more information doesn't necessarily change the way we behave. Will you talk about that a little bit and how your book goes beyond just adding, again, more good ideas, more knowledge, but how does it really leave one being either a leader or achieving performance, Mm -hmm. if it doesn't just add at the level of mind?
1: Right. Well, (laughs) counterintuitively, what we think, what we've come to, to accept as our way of dealing with life as Westerners, developed country thinkers, is that the more knowledge you get, the better you are to deal with things you have to deal with in life. Knowledge is king. You get it through education, sometimes formalized education, sometimes informal education. However, but the answer often to the problems that we're dealing with is learn something Mm -hmm. or you didn't learn something. That's why you have this issue. So knowledge is, 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 critical in that way of thinking, probably the originator of what now is an epistemological based society, or society's knowledge-based epistemological, was Descartes. Descartes was a brilliant thinker, mathematician, philosopher, and so forth, but had a particular view of things that have stayed because they were so compelling at the time, and which we think have been shown to be fallacious, Um, like this notion of a thinking being, a thinking creature Mm -hmm. called the mind. Well, Mm -hmm. he first called it the soul. Now, that transformed into mind, and that mind was um, the repository of all the stuff you needed to deal with life and life beyond death, perhaps. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, spiritual life. That whole notion of the mental aspect of life and the accumulation of knowledge. Unfortunately, you know, can you learn to play professional golf by reading a book? You learn
0: something about it. Yes, but can you go play? Probably not exclusively from having read a book.
1: Okay. And if you had instruction and you had all the things you think you need to know, and you had it all, just given to you, all the knowledge about something, Mm -hmm. would you then be at the highest level of delivery of that ability? No. No. Because delivery of that ability is not based on what you know. Right. It is based on something, but not what you know. You would say it's based on practice, but that's not enough. So the players who are playing the game are in a different position with regard to the game itself. And what it takes to win the game and perform in the game than the people who are watching them play. Right? The people watching them play who are not playing have all sorts of opinions and ideas about what should be going on, but they're not playing the game. Right? The people playing the game are dealing with a different world. They're dealing with a world coming at them full blast, chaotically, comp- almost quantum like. Things are happening all at the same time, and they got to make split second decisions. Decisions that are so fast that the actual cortex cannot make them. They're split second, faster than the cortex works. You cannot hit a fast ball going ninety six miles an hour by thinking about anything to determine whether you're going to hit it or not.
2: Yeah,
1: it's not how it goes. Now, people do hit some fastballs, not a lot at the major league level. They pay people millions of dollars who can hit fastballs or curveballs or both. Yeah, Millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of people can do it. And there's batting coaches and instructors and, you know, the minor leagues training and all that training and a lot of stuff written about it. A lot of un- people understand it. A lot of analysts. A lot a of, a anal- lot of oh, well, analysts. <laughs> there are interesting to the other people who are watching the game. Right. But me as the baseball player, I wouldn't listen to an analyst to see what's going wrong with my swing. Yeah. So it's a different world. The world of performance. It has its own world, the world of performance. And in that world, people who navigate it effectively have learned something about dealing with themselves, engaging in life. That is not conceptual. It does have experience behind it, but it's not purely experiential. You know, I can fail and, fail and fail and fail and fail and then all of a sudden get it. So that I failed and failed and failed doesn't mean I'm going to fail. It meant I failed and I failed and I failed and I failed and, I failed, and I failed. If I know how to deal with that, in a way that actually makes it valuable to fail, mm. then I can transform my failures into a success at some point. But not because I have the history of failing. Right. Because I got something from the history of failing. No. That I apply in the next moment of
0: time. When I hear this thought, I think it's very profound. I think it's a very profound thought. And I also, you know, I find myself evaluating it, right? And trying to look for examples in my own life or, or whatever. And if I listen to this thought and attempt to impose a beginner's mind on myself, and I think like, you know, and nevertheless, all this stuff shows up. Do I agree? You know, is that true? You know, like that kind of thing. A thought I have is, is that, you know, is again, it's not intuitive. It's not, it's not something that I go, Oh yeah, that, that makes sense that if I have a history of failure, it doesn't, not only does it not mean I won't fail again, it doesn't mean I'll succeed either, right? But my, I have the opportunity to transform what it means to give myself, a you know, a view of the future that, that's empowering. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't, that's not something that I think, you know, most people get, or if they do, if they think they get it, what they're really getting is positive thinking.
1: Yeah, Exactly.
0: Um, which I don't, that's not what I'm proposing and I'm, I'm not a fan of it. Right. It's I very mean. nuanced. I mean, to me, this is like, it's very profound but it's very, it's also very nuanced. So like you were saying before, if, if you were to explain this in depth, it would take hours as, as I'm thinking about someone listening to this conversation we're having is a part of me that wonders like how much background or context must be added to someone who's never heard much of this before before it starts to have a relevance or even be comprehensible you know well, useful, you right? what I dealt with in the book <laughs> yes but just
1: carry on yeah. You know what
0: yeah um
1: don't look backward just keep going forward there is a book to make it easy for people if they want to get into this thing there's a really good great book called black box thinking hmm. and I think the subtitle which has changed a few times it's written by a a writer in London, a sports writer. The guy's a sports writer.
2: Hmm.
1: It has nothing to do with sports. It's, you know, he's just a great observer. Uh, I think the subtitle is something like, Why Some People Learn from Their Mistakes and Others Never Do. Hmm. And it's about the, the very nature of our modern scientific society is dealing powerfully with failure. In other words, I come up with a theorem, a scientific theorem, Well, how do we know whether we should go with it or not? Well, people do experiments. And what they're trying to do is do an experiment that shows that it's not accurate. They're actually trying to show it's false. Right. And if a thousand experiments happen over the course of a long period of time and no one can falsify it, it ends up being the way things are. Right. So this notion of falsification, of testing is very modern, very scientific. It's what everything's built on, really, yeah. okay? It is foreign with the way people think about dealing with their own life and the failures in their life. Everyone wants, to, everyone wants to avoid failing. The only problem is that you can't do anything new, because by virtue of doing something new, the chances of you failing at it initially are pretty high. And they're fine. Don't do that one again. You got that one out of the way, Try try another approach. So this, the reason they call it black box thinking and the power of it is the author starts by contrasting the kind of thinking done in the uh, airplane industry versus the kind of thinking done in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. And they're two different industries with two different histories. Mm-hmm. The airplane industry's history was 1900s. Airplanes were first taken or 1890s, whenever it was, went a hundred yards. And then they figured out how to make it longer and longer and longer, it's still pretty dangerous. Mm-hmm. And it stayed dangerous for 20, 30 years. You know, the, the mail trucks run by the cowboys, the, the ma- ma- mail trucks, the mail airplanes run by the cowboys, crashed a lot. It was a dangerous sport. As people looked at it though, they said, wow, this is something you can make money with, but you can't have these crashes. Gotta figure out how to not have crashes. Then we can make money. So the whole notion of safety became not a, not a good thing, a critical thing for investment and actually making money. So in mon- so there's in every airplane, there's a black box. And the point of the black box is to be used to determine what went wrong. So we, didn't, we don't do that one again. Yeah. And if you look at crashes, and last year there, there actually were no crashes for commercial jets at the, at the international level. Once there's a crash, independent investigators from the, from the governments go and study it. And their, their findings are made available real time to every pilot and everybody in the world all the time. Because they want everyone to know. And everybody wants to know. It's not like, oh, I'm going to hide it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be blamed. Mm -hmm. If you think that, you can't play the game. So that's black box thinking. Now you contrast that with a lot of things that go wrong in operations, in healthcare, where you have a lot of opacity instead of um, transparency. Mm -hmm. It's a different world. So the nature of failing is, if you can own it, as something useful for the future, not something to use to make wrong or blame or so forth, punish. I mean, that may be involved in certain aspects of it, but failure as an opportunity to get it right. How many times do you think uh, Edison failed with the light bulb? Well, if the stories are true, they say 10,000, 9,999. Right. Or Dyson with his vacuum cleaner. He apparently went through 5,600 and something um, iterations of a particular device at the heart of his vacuum cleaner that he's now a billionaire from. It's amazing. Yeah. It's people who can deal with failure as an access to success. So that's where the abilities to perform develop. In, in that kind of uh, game. If you're a boxer, you walk in the ring, there's actually somebody there trying to kill you. Yes. You did not read about it. You dealt with something to prepare you for creating something in that moment.
0: Let me shift gears a little bit and ask you about your passion for music. Mm-hmm. So you're a musician, mm-hmm. right? Talking about things you don't just learn by reading. right? <laughs> And I understand you play classical music, you play jazz, right? Tell me about, tell me about your passion for music.
1: Well, when I was nine years old, they brought instruments by my classroom to find out if people who were interested in any of the instruments, you know, This is in, some, in Brooklyn. Yeah. In, I grew up in Brooklyn and, um, somebody ended up with the clarinet and I liked it. Hmm. And my mother said, do you want to learn that? I said, yeah, it sounded like a good idea. I developed discipline somewhere in that period of time. Mostly it was to deal with thinking that I was not smart enough and I needed to do better on tests. So I developed the discipline of studying. So I applied discipline to the clarinet and got pretty good at it as a high school teenager. then So that was classical music and then kind of expanded into jazz and Stuff like that. And I worked in some, you know, different bands in Chicago and New York doing rhythm and blues, soul music, classical, classical on the side sometimes. Um, I did that through my 30s and so forth, but uh, really have not, the kind of work I did sort of took over because it took so much of my intellectual um, capacity to stay with it. Uh, that I pretty much gave up the other things that were interesting to me, but, um, like sports and stuff. I mean, I kept them up at a, at a minimum level. Mm-hmm. Like I've kept up, I can still play my instruments. I can still, you know, you played do the
0: saxophone also, the saxophone
1: flute, clarinet.
0: When was the last time
1: you played? Oh, probably about four months ago. Mm-hmm. Just cool. make sure I still could play. Keep up with it. All right,
0: Cool. Let me ask when you. When I get old,
1: I'll maybe become a musician again. <laughs>
0: awesome. Let me ask you a few questions that don't deal with anything we've talked about at this point. Yeah. So this first question is a question you can answer any way you'd like, of course, but I invite you. To answer it with something other than a box of chocolates. Okay. So fill in the blank. Life is
1: like a... Well, we already dealt with life's empty and meaningless. So I'm not sure what you put in
2: that blank. Right?
0: <laughs> so you leave it blank. Life is yes, like a... It's just blank. Okay. Life is like... it. Okay. Fair enough. I like it. Number two, what do you wish you were better at? This is going to sound strange because
1: you know that I've You've been involved in a number of conversations that I've led in various ways. And you know my work pretty well. But I wish I was better in communicating. Okay. I'm always, you know, I'm I'm always, uh, that could have been done better. Or, you know, I want 100%. And if you're working with 100 people, it's almost never 100%. Yeah. It could get close, 98%. So, whatever it takes to get that last few percent is what I'd like to master. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a T-shirt with a slogan on it, or a phrase, or a saying, or a quote, or a quip of some kind, what would the T-shirt say? Ah, How about Life's Empty (laughs) and (laughs) Meaningless? I could have seen that one coming. Or, or, um, don't
1: sweat, as my friend Charlie used to say. Don't sweat the small stuff. Mm. Wisdom. Now, yeah, everything is pretty much small yeah. when you compare it to a life or infinity or anything. Yeah. So, oh, that I wish I was better at not worrying about things. No, I know worrying makes no difference. No. Yeah. But I'll find myself worrying about something.
0: Yeah, you don't strike me as a worrier.
1: No, I'm not a worrier, but I have
0: moments of worry. Yeah. I'd like no moments of worry. And if you had no moments of worry, what would you have instead? Peace. Okay. Beautiful.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> I love it. What book other than your own, have you gifted most often? Well, through recently or just through my life? Both. Mm.
1: Through my life, I think the book i most gifted or suggested at least was Catch-22. Mm. Why? Oh, I just thought it was just an amazing book about the absurdity of life. Mm. What about recently? The book I've been promoting, uh, one book I've been, I just talked about, which is um, Black Box Thinking. Another book that I started reading recently that I would recommend is um,
0: Stealing Fire. Kotler. Mm, yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. So you travel a ton. Mm. What's one thing you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? nutritional things
1: because I find that one of the hardest things for me when I'm traveling is dealing with my um, nutrition like that train myself to deal with it my, my own ideas of diet and so forth and so oftentimes I'll bring things that I can substitute for what I'm offered to stay true to my dietary intents or, um, you know, fill in the gap about lack of protein and so forth.
0: Just uh, diet is a big thing for me. Another, did you ask for difficulties in travel? Yeah, so something, either something you do or something you take with you when you travel. Well, one it. of the things I take with me is a jump rope that I don't use as much as I
1: should. Mm. Because exercise, when I'm working and traveling, becomes difficult. So sometimes the... Well, the work starts at 6 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then when you're done at the end of the day and you have to be up the next day at 6, you don't feel like exercising. Yeah. So So you, you bring a jump rope with you. Bring a jump rope and have a little routine I do in, in hotel rooms if I have to. Mm-hmm. But I don't like it. I mean, I like running and physical stuff, you yeah. know, weightlifting or martial arts with
2: at
0: least... Bags, things like that. So that leads maybe right into this next question is what's, what's something that you've either started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Well, I used to love to smoke. I stopped that. Hmm. I loved it. It might be why you're still here. <laughs> maybe.
1: <laughs> and um, I did change my diet as I got older. I had a very high metabolism when I was young. I pretty much could eat anything. And then, as I got older, that changed. So I've had to vary, vary my nutrition based on aging and traveling. Mm. I don't find myself able to uh, access a lot of the media that I would at home. You know, it comes and goes, so to speak, on the road. Mm. You either catch it or you don't catch it. Mm. So things I want to see or make sure. I can you know every cord, but don't have that privilege on the road and then um friends and family they get difficult when you're traveling mm-hmm. you're staying in touch yeah staying in touch being with them staying in touch
2: mm-hmm.
1: your son lives in la that- he lives in san francisco oh he actually started working for my firm about two years ago so that's been good in terms of our seeing each other in some regular basis.
0: Family business. Yeah, right. Well, he's part of it anyway. Oh, I know. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Well, I wish they
1: um, understood the the history of the country and what's brought it to its current situation, which I feel very less than before. It may just be the times, but I don't think people are familiar with or exposed to what actually brought us to where we
0: are. What do you see, are like, maybe one or two of the biggest points that have brought us where we are?
1: Well, there's a big anti-immigration wave coming on, but this is a country of immigrants, right? Right. And most of people saying what they're saying came from immigrants, mm-hmm. and it used to be considered our strength. Yeah. So I don't think people understand that history. And the history of racism and where the country began and how it's dealt with it, I think, is swept under the rug. Yeah. I think so.
0: All right. What advice did your parents give you that has impacted you or stayed with you? Mother and father
1: probably told me everything I should do that was right. And I didn't listen to them, so I ended up wasting a lot of time, a lot of money, and all that stuff. But it was kind of how I think people have to go, they have to discover things for themselves. So I pretty much was uncoachable as a child. I mean, I was not a bad child. I was successful in the things you're supposed to be successful in as a child, school and and stuff like that. So I didn't get a lot of uh, worry around me and concern and you know, correction and all that stuff. But my mother had a very level head about life. And um, I ignored a lot of her ideas. It came back for me to see. Uh, I you know, wish I had gotten that earlier. Uh, and then there are ideas that she had of things she worried about my doing. Like studying philosophy, which turned out, I think, in my benefit. She worried about you studying philosophy. Yeah, why? you wanted me to be
0: a you know a lawyer, or a doctor, or something. Oh, something something I mean, practical. What do, you, what do you do with philosophy? <laughs> yeah, and you got you got a master's degree in philosophy. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it,
1: it, and I was it. getting, I was working on a PhD, and then got bored with it. So, what was your plan, by the way? Before like before, I got bored with it, or after? Well, my plan before was to be a professor. Okay. Then I, at that time, that lifestyle didn't seem as exciting as the other lifestyles that were happening in the late 60s and
0: early 70s. Mm-hmm. So that was in that was in Chicago. Yeah. And then you went to San Francisco. Right. Well, I decided I didn't want to be
1: a professor. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to live in any particular place. So the place that was most compelling was San Francisco.
2: Yeah.
0: I can imagine in the... 60s and 70s. That's right. That's it was definitely an experience. What about San Francisco at the time stands out to you now? Like, what was it that made it so special or so memorable?
1: Oh, it was really creative, innovative. Everything was sort of being made up as you went along. Lifestyle, music, music was great. You know, the rock and roll revolution, the psychedelic revolution. Social revolution, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on, too, you know, radical stuff that I was not into, overthrow the government type of stuff. And Vietnam War was in full-blown fashion, but somehow San Francisco was a beacon of uh, of truth-telling and kind of like possibility for me.
0: Cool. Let me just shift one more time to a set of questions that are, again, specific to the book and more specific even to the process you use to get the book written and published. Mm. Again, these questions are designed to give others insight, inspiration, you know, maybe something they can take away and apply in their own efforts Mm -hmm. to get their own book done and and not just published, but also read. You've talked about the fact you had a co-writer Do you think that having a co-writer made this, made it easier or more difficult, or both, (laughs) and how?
1: It made getting into it more, quote, easy than being left to my own devices, like the discipline that you have to do. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of discipline Mm -hmm. to writing, and people do it in different ways. Some people will write hour or an hour every day regardless mm-hmm. even if they got nothing to write they'll sit, look at the computer you know or the, if they're writing on the paper but they'll do that every day and then some people will write when it when quote the moment seizes them and go on for hours write all night and stuff like that so you got and anything in between so you got a lot of ways of doing it but you got to do it And the confront, I think, is actually writing something down. Anything. Because it's going to be terrible. It it is. It's going to be terrible. You never get it right the first time. Mm -hmm. Which is an amazing truth. And I I started to realize, God, think of the courage it takes a sculptor, particularly a sculptor working with marble, like Michelangelo, to actually hit the damn thing because you almost never get it right. So as you go through trying to pull out of this marble some creation, you got to deal with your mistakes along the way. You constantly, you know, work out workarounds.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I guess as you get to be a master of that craft it gets less and less, but I'm sure there's always mistakes. Anyway, I found I always found writing somewhat tedious. So, with papers and, and at the master's level, even my master thesis, I got to writing them in one sitting. Wow. Because I just didn't like the, the process of writing it, coming back in that kind of everyday agony. Mm-hmm. Stopping and starting yeah, again. Yeah. And... So, I'd have to hold, hold an idea that was fairly long in execution. Sometimes I wasn't quite sure where I'd end up in the, in the propositions I was dealing with. And I was, it was kind of a murder mystery for me that actually was useful because it kept me compelled. Like, where is this logic going to take me? It usually worked. Not every single time, but it usually worked. But that, that was for school. When I didn't have to do it, I enjoyed really being in talking with people, like interacting with people about the ideas. I like dialogue. I like the given you know, back and forth, you know? Mm-hmm. The interaction, the excitement of the kind of discoveries that you have mm-hmm. in that real time situation, which writing never occurred for me that way. So I did write things and I wrote things by myself and I wrote it with other people. Writing it with other people was enjoyable just because you were working with another person yeah. and you had to be there.
0: So did you write in person or did you write over the phone? We did both. We we wrote for five or six years, the book. So we
1: got together regularly every two months or three months. We took trips to interview clients that had gone through these transformations to find out how things worked. them. now one was in Japan, took a trip to Japan together. But we'd write a lot on the phone
0: or on shared documents when that technology became available. From your view, what was the sequence of events that led to this thing going from concept to completion?
1: Well, first it was, um, you know, Dave had written three or four books. And one one was a bestseller, too. It was um, So is, Sells Well, Tribal Leadership, I think. So he kind of guided the beginning conversations. All right, we need to find an agent. An agent? You've got to design a publisher. Now, you work with the agent around publishers, but you have a notion that some publishers have more this type of book than others mm-hmm. understand this kind of book, this marketing, and so forth. Some give you more marketing, some give you less. His whole world of, or was a world, things have quite changed now since when we wrote this book in 2009. Yeah. I mean, really, publishing has altered significantly. But back then, it was, um, who do we get as a publisher? Who do we want? Who do we get? How do we get a Book agent. Mm-hmm. Who's a good book agent? And that, be, that was a matter of um, getting some references and suggestions. And then actually calling up some people and ending up with someone we thought we liked, and seeing how conversations went with that person, their ideas, and then uh, basically we had to write we had to write a outline of the book for the book proposal, kind of like what it's about, where it goes, mm-hmm. um, and a sample chapter. The sample chapter held up. Um, we wrote it. And actually had it uh, was published on um, Mike Jensen's website called SSRN, Social Science Research Network, mm. which is now, um, I think he sold it to other investors in the Social Science Paper Distribution Network. It is the largest dis- distributor of social science research in the world, millions of articles. Mm. So we published the uh, the first chapter as a piece of its own called the rewriting the future something like that still up on SSRN mm-hmm. and and it became the heart of one of the one of the chapters in the book one of the early chapters in the book the outline we came up with got changed about 10 times but we had an outline of where we thought the book would go why did it keep changing Because our ideas kept changing. We kept reworking. Part of it was just, we didn't see the full extent of what we could do. Part of it was um, how we articulated it got clearer and clearer. When we had a struggle with writing it out Mm -hmm. and getting feedback. I mean, a lot of the process was write it, pass it out to a lot of people. Different kinds of people. A whole we created a whole reviewing network of people that were interested in what we are doing. People from the Barbados group itself, people from our consulting constituencies, people from our personal life—you know, people whose ideas we thought highly of—and um, we had a lot of people interested in the book's publication too, in our internal organizations and so forth and in the Barbados group people. So it floated around and got a lot of feedback. And every time we get feedback, we dealt with it. And oftentimes it was good and may,
0: may, meant changing stuff. How did you know what feedback to listen to and what feedback to ignore?
1: Uh, it's just what, what lands, makes sense. I mean, some, some stuff people would say a cautionary note about Something and for me it was like I'm not wor- I'm not worried about that, mm-hmm. or they bring up something that I hadn't thought about, and I said, "Oh, that should be dealt with." Yes, yeah, I don't want going in that kind of
0: weird direction. It could go there. So, what roles did you each play in the you and Dave in the creation and the drafting of the book?
1: Well, like I said, it reversed itself. Polarity a few times. Sometimes I was the um, the methodology and technology expert of how we were applying these three laws that we created, the three laws of performance. And Dave was the writer, skilled at communicating. And then sometimes that changed. I and mean, sometimes we were playing the same role. With one view, one voice, but through it all, we had—I don't think we ever had a blow up or you know that kind of thing. We argued about things, but kept our relationship in affinity all through the
0: time. Still have it. That's great. So it was never. Wasn't a drama. I hear that it, it was very uh, amiable. Like it worked. It sounds like it works. This partnership. What was the most challenging part of? writing a book with another person? Well, it takes more time,
1: inherently, because you're gonna go back and forth. Mm. Now, maybe you should spend that amount of time if you're writing by yourself. I don't know, Mm. didn't do that. Mm. But it seemed to take an awful lot of time, and we had to structure our meetings and time to write together. And so it was often inconvenient, in the sense that this, any schedule is inconvenient. That's the truth.
0: Yeah. Any schedule is inconvenient. Right. <laughs> yes. So what what did your, your process look like? Did you do a given amount of time? I went day, from
2: the you...
1: depths of hell to the heights of heaven. <laughs> I went from this will never get done to, oh, this is looking good. Yeah. And that would be with every chapter. Every chapter was its own world. Wow. And then, um, then we were down to. We had a published date. We had a date by which we were supposed to send in the manuscript. It wasn't at the beginning,
0: but it came up in the, in the process of writing it. In that five-year window, you're saying yeah. it took to write the book. Where did the book deal come in? Oh, well, the book deal was there at the beginning, uh, relatively at the beginning. So that's a very generous window of yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: They were not. We were sending her the material and. She understood the editor, Susan. who was great, great um, in her contribution and the way she managed us. She understood the complexity of what we were doing and she understood it. She liked it. So there was no pressure for a couple of years on when are you guys going to write this? Oh. They, it's kind of, they understood it would get written. We were writing. Mm. So it was, you know, the best we could do.
0: So did but you- then at some point, it got to be. We needed to have a date. Yeah. Deadlines can Deadlines. be powerful. Right. For sure. What was your writing process like? Did you have a page? Did you do a word count, minutes per day, like page pages per week? What? Did, how did you keep yourself on track in terms of process?
1: In the early
0: days, it was more
1: meeting and working on stuff, and we'd get as far as we get, and then come back and keep working on stuff and get as far as we got. So it wasn't, um, the meetings were set in time so that we were spending that amount of time on the book was always guaranteed because we did it in time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I didn't spend any time in between the meetings on the book. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I did. Depending on, um, whether I thought we were hung up by something or not. I mean, there were times when I just took on something and called Dave a few days later and said, hey, why don't you read what I just did on this part here. So we had a fluidity like that. Uh as we got in the last couple of years when the book had a published date, because we needed to organize marketing around the book and all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Then it got to be, okay, well finish the books is written in three parts. And we did something unusual, I feel each part is somewhat independent of the other part. So first part is about the three laws as illustrated by case examples, like how they were played out in companies. Mm -hmm. And then the second part, each part being two or three chapters, the second part was about the theory behind it. And the third part was how it applies, how you can have it apply to your personal life. Mm -hmm. They're written so you can actually read a part, not in the order of the book, Mm -hmm. you read the personal life part if you wanted to first. So we'd finish a part, and then we'd say, okay, we need to get the second part done by this period, in this last part by this period, meet the deadline. You know, we're thinking back from the deadline at some point a lot because our, our rate sometimes is not very fast. Yeah. The last month of the book was very intense and it was, um, it was the last month. We couldn't, you know, screw around anymore. And I had a a week meeting in Cancun. It was Cancun, somewhere in Mexico, like Cancun. It was Cancun. And about the beginning of the meeting, I spoke with Dave. I thought we were kind of like pretty done. and he, he, had res- he let his wife read the book, and she had some reservations about a lot of the ways things landed, kind of like... Too self promotional. And what did you think? I didn't think that till she said that. And then did then you I of- look at the book and I said, you know, I could see where she would say that. Mm-hmm. And so Dave and I, much to our not wanting to, said we should write it more objectively here and there and there mm-hmm. than about kind of I don't know our view of it. So it required us kind of rewriting the whole book in the last week. Wow. He would take a chapter, I would take a chapter, then we send it back and forth, read each other's chapter, correct it, then we move on. And we did
0: that. You got it done? It was intense though, that last week. How much better do you think the book is because of that last rewrite? Oh, I think it's very much better. If you had this project to do over again, what would you do the same and what would you do differently?
1: Well, I think I would not have had long periods where we didn't work on it. Because sometimes it would take a while to get back. Like weeks or months? Oh, yeah. Sometimes we'd have, you know, a meeting in two months. Then when we got back together, it was sort of starting all over again. Yeah. So I I would um, compress that period of time. You know, I think, think you said it. Five years, we could have done it in two years or two and a half years. Mm-hmm. If now that would have meant, I think, not doing a lot of other stuff that we wanted to do. So I don't quite know how you would have put it into practice. But ideally, if you, if I took your question, what would improve? What would make it? Um, what would have been an improvement would be the velocity with which we dealt with it.
0: Well, then the fact that you got the book done, I mean, I think many, many projects that we set off on that have, you know, that even have the hint of having a five-year will, like a five-year span, the completion rate is probably pretty low, generally speaking. How did this not just fade away? You're both busy. Uh,
1: Other than the fact that I generally complete things, and so does Dave, I think there was no option. There were too many people involved. We had taken the publisher's money. Pretty hard to go back then. Yeah, right. right. And there were a whole lot of other people who had an interest in the book. From, I hope it goes great, to, well, it's got to be rigorous. Yeah. It's got to represent what we the work we did in the Barbados group. So a lot of eyeballs watching the project. Yeah. It was a little hard to walk away from that. Yeah. You know that could be you know negative or it could be you know maybe it's a good way to set up a project to have a lot of people invested in your
0: project invested as an in interested yeah i can see where that would be that would be powerful yeah what advice would you give somebody who's maybe in the middle of their own project or they're thinking about starting it or they've started it and you know abandoned it and started and abandoned like what advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about or working to get their own book done?
1: Well, I'm sure there are naturally gifted writers in the sense that they can write something and pretty much first time around or second time around it goes well. Mm -hmm. I'm not that way. And I think probably a lot of people are not that way. But hard work can make up for it. Mm -hmm. you got to be willing to write it and rewrite it and write it and rewrite it and think about it and write it. And that's like exercising. Yeah. Um, just no way to get around it, though. And if you're willing to do that, you get self-trained. There is there is an art. There is a craft to it. I didn't read any books about writing. So whatever I learned, I discovered it by doing it, and usually wrongly, and then going back and seeing some other ways that could have been shortcutted and so forth. But a lot of it is just confronting that you have something you want to say, but you're not yet saying it. And you got to look at it and confront that. And then confront that again, confront that again. And sometimes it's just one word. You know, it makes all the difference. So I guess my advice is be willing to work really hard. Mm-hmm. And that'll make up for a lot of what you think of as shortcomings. I like that.
0: Well, when I looked on Amazon, I see there are other things that come up with your name, like an audio program from a seminar you led, but I don't see any other books with Mm -hmm. your name. I think this is it. Why in 10 years have you not written anything else? Oh, Uh, Any other books, I know you've written other things, you've written papers and articles and things like that, but why? Why no other books? I don't know.
1: Just to be honest with you, Brian, it hasn't come up. Like um, nothing's compelled me to want to write a, a book. Mm. I mean, the articles I've done have been interesting and just um, around different ideas. So it's related set of work. Mm. But I've done a lot of the articles with different authors, done some stuff by myself. For me, whatever book hunger there was, got satisfied with that one book. Yeah. Now I don't know. Maybe there, there's another one. I wouldn't mind writing a science fiction book. That would be for fun. Yeah.
0: I will. If you write it, I will read it. Great. Just got at least I one. At least one person. You can sell it to. Yes. What haven't we said about writing? I mean, sometimes I ask about tools. You know, the software, the the hardware. You know, the daily routine, how you organized your time. Um, we've talked about the team behind this. What what haven't we talked about when it comes to the writing, the strategy and tactics that led to this book becoming a reality? Well, we did talk about the, the thing I think was most central was the
1: amazing amount of hard work was um, intellectually difficult work to, con- to look at your thing and criticize it. I didn't mind being criticized and you know other people criticize it. But to force myself to be critical of my own stuff, um, took some effort on my part. Setting up the time to do it, there's never any time to do it. When, we, now, when we got down to the deadline, then there was, that by itself became a, something to do. But if I'm writing a book and I don't have a publisher, and I don't have a contract, which a lot of people start with, right? Right. Creating the urgency to actually do it is difficult, which means doing it is difficult because you don't have to. Right. It's hard. So what you have to do is find something important about that. It isn't like this is the important thing about it, but you got to find something important about doing it, which is important enough to have you stay up till about 3 in the morning working on something and coming back to it the next day. On the weekend or whenever you have the time. And that's going to be different for everybody. That's going to be different for everyone. But the, same, the one thing that's going to be the same is it's important.
2: Right.
0: Cool. Because if it isn't, don't screw around with it. Yeah. Why bother? Why bother? Okay. So one thing I'm curious before we wrap up here. I heard you talk about your role now with Vanto. Mm-hmm. With Vanto Group is R&D. Well, and delivery. And and delivery. So what, is, what does that mean? Design. Well, we
1: do... Um, our methodology is always customized. It's while we have standard models we've used for standard for certain kinds of general situations like union management conflicts or mm. worker mobilization, getting all the workers into a, a space of team or leadership or whatever the requested ideas. Or a company starting off or re reinventing itself. Mm. We have models that we've done in the past, but they always have to be modified or customized. because mm. nothing ever is exactly the same. Right. And um, so the design of that is what I call research design development mm. in the general area. And then there's actually Look, exploring, is this possible, doing this in another way? Is there a faster way to do this? And trying out different, um, different ideas that would possibly speed up the, the rate at which people get it, the rate at which it actually has an impact on the way in which they engage with life. Something shifts for them, a way of seeing something. A door opens up something becomes possible in the actual doing of it that wasn't possible earlier. That's what I mean by the engagement in life. Yeah, Actually dealing with this person or that person or this group of people or your boss or the people that work with you or the conditions in which you're doing the work and how people are operating about it. So in the very act of engaging with life, um, things open up and present different possibilities. So we're always exploring how to make that faster, how to make that more um, easier in a way, I think, but fast is probably the right word. I don't know if it's ever easier. You know, hitting a baseball is just hitting a baseball. I don't know if it's easier or harder. I guess it's harder when you strike out than (laughs) when you don't.
2: No.
1: Um, But it's still the same
0: physical activity. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So if people want to learn more from you, of course, they can read The Three Laws of Performance. If they want to connect with you or they want to learn more than that, what should they do? Well, they can do uh,
1: Landmarks Public Programs. One's called The Forum. That's a great program that takes these ideas and allows you to have your life be influenced. Have the ideas have an influence on the way in which you're engaging with life in a way that most people find positive and powerful. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, rather than intellectualize the engagement, let's do something like do the landmark forum. And um, if people are interested in finding out more about our consulting, go to the webpage and there will be contact information there.
0: Novantergroup.com. Cool. Okay. Great. And as a way of expressing my gratitude to you for, making time to talk with me. Over these last couple hours, I have made a $100 loan through Kiva.org to a lady, a 33-year-old married woman in Gujarat, India, who is engaging in the agricultural business. She's growing plants, rice, vegetables on her farm. She has a household of seven members. So she'll use this money to purchase seeds and fertilizers and water pipe so her family, her life, her family, and I That's like to think her community will be improved.
1: That's in some great. Small way.
0: So. That's one of my best payments ever. <laughs> cool. Well, you've done a lot of good for a lot of people and including me and I thank you. Thank you for that and thank you for making time today. Ryan, thank you very
2: much. It was fun. Yeah, it was.